Hey guys, it's Cody again. Uh, again, I apologize for the unorthodoxness, her, her, of how I split this podcast. It just seemed to make sense. Uh, this section of the podcast with the Mississippster himself, Alexander Ignatiev, uh, features mostly the Passion Cellars Grenache. I split the beer portion into the podcast I posted previously. Anyway, guys, have fun! <laughs> Wine Monk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another special edition of the Arizona Wine Monk. I'm here with the Mississippster himself, Alexander Ignatiev. We've been drinking most of the day. Um, to be fair, the day ain't over yet. And we're going to still be drinking more, but we've decided to switch to podcast mode since the 7 o'clock tickets at the Star Wars... Showing in Sedona, we're sold out, and we said, well, screw it, let's go home and drink. That, um, that is a fair assessment. Because ain't nobody got time for that. True. So, knowing Alexander's fondness for Grenache, uh, and since I have this very special bottle, uh, this is the Passion Cellars Wine Club Reserve Exclusive. What? 2013 Grenache. Say what? What? No, I, I, that, that's astounding. Yeah, this I, is... I'm honored. This is normally Wine Club exclusive, but uh, I got a bottle for Christmas. Wow. From uh, our winemaker. So he gave us each a bottle of the Wine Club exclusive wines. Wow. Because he is a generous, wonderful boss. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Actually, hands out more of them. Yeah. Well, he probably will not be listening to this podcast because he doesn't really follow it very much. But oh, sad Christmas. Indeed. So this is 100% Grenache. The fruit for this Grenache came from Dragoon Mountain Vineyards near Wilcox, southeastern Arizona. Dragoon produces a lot of the fruit for a lot of Arizona's wineries right now. Um. 2013, I actually, son of a bitch, this was, I helped the day that we crushed this. Mm. So my hands have been in this wine from the very beginning. Uh, and I really That's haven't. Not at all gross. Especially when I said it that way. Yes. <laughs> my hands have been in a lot of things since the beginning and it never is pleasant. <laughs> never. Oh, do I, do I make the joke? No, no, let's move on and. Let us diminish and go into the east. Or I mean Galadriel. <laughs> I mean west. Shit. No, no, you can go to the east, dude. That's cool. And I lose all nerd cred five seconds ago. <laughs> well, it's your podcast. You can edit that out. I could. But will I? Anyway, so 100% Grenache to Green Mountain Vineyard. Um, aged on American and French oak. I want to say some of it was new, but I don't know how much offhand, because most of my aid in making this bottle uh, was on the crush pad, which also was the very first day I've ever been stung by a bee. True story. Um, how did that make you feel? Well, uh, accursed a little bit, um, and also... Everyone laughed at me, which hurt me a little bit more, mm. because uh, I was the one person on the crush bed who was not wearing galoshes, and my thought was, galoshes are going to be too hot, um, there's going to be a lot of water around, I'll be fine in sandals, like Tiva sandals, so I... Think galoshes are inauthentic. Well, I suppose you could say that, but it was mostly like, yeah, they're going to be hot, I'm going to be uncomfortable, I'd rather be sandal in sandals and be cozy and... Well, not cozy, but comfortable, and this bee, drunk on already fermenting Grenache, uh, lands in my f little toe on my left foot, oh, Lord panics, stings me, and then, of course, being a bee, dies. And I'm like, mother trucker, really? Really? You picked the tiniest target on my entire body to sting? Well, to be fair... I imagine it got a good bit less tiny afterwards. 
Yes, this is true. It, it swelled up to about the size of, you know, my middle toe. And since I'd never been stung by a bee before, I'm like, oh, this will be fun to find out if I'm allergic or not. Um, but on the bright side, it's in a place that we can easily, like, hack off if need being. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not how anaphylaxis works. But Probably not, but... The good news is that I do have my EpiPen with me, so if a bee stings you now, I can take care of that for you. Yeah, but it turns out I wasn't allergic at all. I just got pissed. Uh, pissed off and then later pissed drunk. Sure. That's kind of your major hobby in Wilcox when you're done with winemaking, is go to Rick's to the cook-your-own-steak place. I like those kinds of places. And then uh, it's Ron Swanson's favorite uh, Wilcox place. Really? Uh, I would assume if he Probably. went through Wilcox. He would not like the whiskey selection, but that's neither here nor there. Well, nobody's perfect. There's um, no lag of ruling, right? No, not in Wilcox. I'd be shocked if there was. Maybe you might be able to find some at the Safeway, but that would be it. Yeah, I, I, I switch between Lafrog and Lagavulin. They're both delightful. But, uh, you know, some days I'm a little bit country, some days I'm a little bit rock and roll. I honestly don't really know that much about scotch at all. It's mostly about the rate with, at which you want the enamel taken off your teeth while you're having a good time. Hmm, I guess. Well, that would be true for some wines, which are tannic or versus a non-tannic. So this is, this is pretty nice. Well, what are you getting on the nose? I don't know. I mean, I literally don't know because... I don't know. At this point, all I'm getting every time I, you know, get some nose of any wine is stone fruit because my palate's totally... I should make you smell coffee, actually. I wonder if that might reset your palate. Now, here comes the delicate part. Can I get out of my chair without tripping on the laptop, the cord, spilling the wine, or spilling the microphone? And without stepping on the open corkscrew. Any answers to that is apparently yes. That should reset your palate a little bit. Whoa, yeah, I smell dirt. Now try again. I'm getting some berry notes. Not like an agglomerated fruit, but an actual berry. Almost, it's not. It's not sweet enough to be like currant. Maybe a red currant. Okay. Cranberry something. I'm getting on the palate of this wine sort of a raspberry cherry, boysenberry, a little bit of tobacco, like a Cavendish specifically. Uh, the oak influence is imparting a little bit of vanilla right. and um, not not quite sandalwood. Not not cedar either. It's like this almost like sawdust. Um, asked I mean, it, it's just straight up oak, like straight up a white oak kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if it was if it was like a scotch, we would say it's got it's a little woody. But it's neutral. I mean, there's not. It doesn't have any. Any, any, any nasty Chardonnay, buttery oak BS. Now the funny thing is that most reds do actually undergo the malactic fermentation that a buttery Chard does, but because reds, and we covered this with uh, Gary in the last podcast, because those wines are often transferred from one barrel to the next and then racked and then put into tanks, they're moved around a lot, so those flavors kind of dissipate. Versus a white that tends to sit there a little bit longer, so those flavors have more time to be prevalent, yeah, so to speak. The wood notes here are very neutral. They're, they just let you know there's a, a wood component. It's also a pretty darn light color. Yeah, not as light as that uh, is it the Arizona Stronghold one that we had. Yeah. That one was basically 
you can look right through it. You know, rose-colored glasses, as it were. Which is one of the reasons why Grenache is a major rosé grape yeah. in Arizona, actually. This one, this one's pretty, uh... I've seen a few Grenaches that are darker, mostly from Spain, very few from Arizona. Um, and to be fair, prior to my trip here, I was familiar entirely with Spanish Grenaches, which I love. Yeah. What do you think about the Arizona ones versus uh, Spain? Oh, they're much more subtle. Spanish Grenache is, you know, it just, it, it's got a lot of pop. It's similar in a lot of ways to uh, Tempranillo in, a, in, in its, you know, the force, like the, the sheer pop, upfront flavor. It's not very subtle. This stuff is very subtle. Oh, yeah, now I'm getting some of the tobacco stuff you were mentioning. Yeah, it's like the Cavendish. It's not like the Perique that we smoked last night and we'll no. be smoking later. Um, possibly even towards the end of this podcast. No, yeah, it's very... It's very nice. It's, it's like a... Almost like a... Tobacco flower. Yeah. You know, it's... Just enough to drive away the insects. As it were, that, you know, that smell of... Uh, man, if only, you know, after... You know months of aging, I could put this in my pipe, this flower would be wonderful. Yeah. Big cherry and oak on the palate. Yeah. This is, this wine definitely saw a lot more oak, so to speak, than the Syrah, I'm sorry, than the Grenache that we had Arizona. And Arizona Stronghold. Yeah. Um, but to be fair, most of their wines are on neutral oak. Very rarely are they heavily oaked at all. Um, the exceptions were the Lozen, or as we referred to it, the Hand of Saruman. Um, but again, that's... What's that? That was a Bordeaux blush. Yeah. That was... Um, I could dig out my bottle and look at the back, but it's... Uh, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, Malbec, and I think a little bit Cab Franc, too. Uh, so it's a uh, classic Bordeaux blend. Um, lacking only the Carbonera. There's only one place in Arizona that grows that grape anyway. Um, Chino Valley, again, up on the other side. Right. But yeah, uh, Grenache seems to be considered by a lot of winemakers to be a pretty... Uh, good grape for Arizona. I am divided. I like it in blends. I like it as a rosé, but rarely as a straight varietal, with some exceptions. Um, the most notable one I've reviewed on the blog before was the Rune Grenache uh, from James Callahan. And this one's also pretty darn nice. I, I like this. This is definitely... I would prefer it to the one uh, from Arizona Stronghold, just because it's got... It's not as retiring. It hangs around a bit. It doesn't stick as much, you know, as a Spanish Grenache. Yeah, it finishes lasting for about... Well, give me a minute, I can actually time that son of a bitch. And tell you how long that finishes, at least on my palate. But I digress. So let's see, where all did we visit today? We started out at Passion, because mm -hmm. uh, I had to show my friend where I work. Um, then we went to Caduceus, bounced to Chateau Tumbleweed, then 4-8, uh, then Stronghold, then Pillsbury, Havelina Leap. We finished off at Oak Creek Brewery. Uh, the original plan, like I said, was to go and see Star Wars tonight, and then uh, talk about a little bit of uh, that ethos. I mean, say what you want, but at least Star Wars is an ethos. No, Star Trek has an ethos. I know. The ethos just... is communism. Uh, like, I mostly uh, uh, was going for the big Lebowski reference right. full on, but yeah. wow. uh, definitely tied the podcast together. <laughs> we believe in nothing, Lebowski. Nothing. You cut off your Johnson, Lebowski. 
Hmm. That reminds me. So, if you've noticed, Donnie wears a different name tag on every shirt. Really? And the one that he wore, apparently, on the night that he dies, is Johnson. So, literally, wow. the Nihilist cut off the dude's Johnson. <laughs> that is appalling on so many levels. <laughs> well, you know, that aggression just will not stand, man. Well, you know, t to be fair, right, that movie is of a piece with, like, the Hudsucker Proxy. Which, of course, is 1994. Big Lebowski's 98. I'm trying to remember what movie came out in between. Um, the still going. I've got 22 seconds. I've got 51. Well, I did not take a big old mouthful, so... That's what they said. I'm also getting some sandalwood and herb notes, like, um, sort of a tarragon cilantro thing. Maybe a little bit of thyme. Tarragon is an interesting choice. Because when I think of tarragon, I think of the vaguely licorice note that you get out of, you know, tarragon, particularly in, like, a fish dish with a butter sauce. Hmm. You just get a little bit of that finishing sort of Fennelly, you know, that brings out the fennelly note. Um, very nice. Very nice, so we like it. Thank you, Jason. So, what is, or I guess I could say, what is going to be? The Mrs. Hipster. Mrs. Sip I, I Hipster. I drink way too much clearly to be able to pronounce this clearly. Um, so the idea is um, several of my friends and I, we were looking at a catalog from Best Made Co., which uh, noted hipster outlet in, uh, I believe, Wall Street area of Manhattan. Uh, 32 White is their address. And they are very 32 white. <laughs> um, but they started out making axes, and they graduated to sort of having fancy pants, outdoorsy stuff, and, you know, sort of grandpa heirloom level telescopes and matchstick cases and all kinds of nonsense. And, uh, you know, I got my requisite smoke jumper belt and other some other hipster nonsense from them on sale and uh, I was like you know this is really obnoxious and I showed it to my friends and they're like these people are totally obnoxious who's going to pay 700 bucks for an American longbow and every one of their American longbows are tested in Japan after they're manufactured, before they're sold. That, that kind of stuff. And so, we originally started to sort of send it up, but then we realized, you know, there's a lot of stuff in Mississippi made by, you know, local artisans and that sort of thing. Um, things like, uh, a, good, a good example is uh, a, a guy in Hattiesburg manufactures beard oil that he calls professional beard oil. And the motto of the company is, we just want to keep our jobs and grow our beards. <laughs> you know, and so he'd been using stuff like argan oil and, you know, various commercial beard oils. And he's like, this is not cutting it for me. So he, he manufactured his own uh, blend of uh, essential oils and like a foundational oil. And it's, it's a pretty good blend. Um, and we also have... The only, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where I live, we have the only independent record store in the state of Mississippi. Really? Yeah, we used to have a bunch, but uh, we're down to one. And there's a second one that's going to be opening. Um, 
but it hasn't opened yet as far as I know. Uh, they're going to open in, I think, January. But that's going to be, I think, in Jackson or Vicksburg. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just sort of a... In, in Mississippi, we have to do everything ourselves. We don't have... You know, our, our built-in culture is southern food and southern music. But it's not... But the craft culture is, you know, it's not commercialized yet. So... It's like uh, it's like fun, right? You got to make it yourself. If other people make your fun for you, it's called entertainment. So, um, Mississippster is really about celebrating the local artisans and retailers who do the stuff to create a local culture. And uh, we're going to theoretically publish quarterly paper catalogs. Um, one for the warm wet season, one for the warm dry season, one for the cold wet season, and one for the cold dry season. Because we, we don't actually have the traditional four seasons in Mississippi. Arizona's kind of like that in that way. Arguably, well, it really depends on where you are in Arizona, because here in Jerome, for example, or Flagstaff, or the Mauer Mountain regions, or Safford, where you were, we'll get into that in a moment. Um, there are five seasons in Arizona. You have winter, spring, summer, monsoon, and then fall, and then it goes back into winter. Right. Um, the summer monsoon season is actually one of the things that makes our wines unique, because if you get a dry year, your Grenache is actually going to be dark. If you have a very wet monsoon season, your Grenache, your Merlot, your Cabernet Sauvignon, um, Sangiovese, too, they will tend to be much lighter. Uh-huh. Now, that doesn't really affect the flavor so much, because the flavor is still very full, very much of that same flavor as always. It affects the appearance of the wine. Um, no one's quite sure why that is. There's a lot of theories as to that, but that's neither here nor there. So you need to do a five-season catalog, uh, five catalog if you were here in Arizona. Yeah. Well, that would actually be useful in Mississippi, because, you know... Uh, Pulpwood manufacture, you know, both timber and actual processing are major parts of Mississippi's uh, forestry industry, so the more catalogs, the better, as far as they're concerned. Makes sense. Yeah. And so one of the hidden uh, tragedies of Mississippi's uh, overforested uh, nature is that we are currently well in excess of forestry replacement rate. So for every tree we cut down, something like two and a half are planted. Huh. Which is really bad because we're already a very rural state and trees grow very quickly in the you know, in the swampland that is the state of Mississippi. You know, very wet most of the time. High water table. So pines grow quickly. Pines grow everywhere. Pines make good paper. Um, so that's what everybody plants. And that's what nature likes to promote. Uh, so it's very, uh, well, basically, we just overforested a lot of deer habitat. We've got, I would say, almost as many deer in Mississippi as we have people, close to 3 million. Uh, it's gotten to the point where there, I think last year we only killed like 240,000 deer. And the state wants us to kill at least twice that many. Hmm. And they're starting to encroach into more heavily populated areas. Like my neighborhood. You know, middle of the city. So here's another question. Uh, and this is vaguely sarcastic, but related to him gently. Mm -hmm. um, if the deer are the problem, um, what is being done to come out of them? If you're going to hunt more, what are you going to do with them? Clearly you should make smoke your sausage and sell it in that catalog. Absolutely. Um, I'm a lousy hunter. The last time I went hunting, the only thing I got was the flu. <laughs> um, and that turned into bronchitis, so really I got two things for the price of one trip. That's better um, than some of the other hunters I know. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, uh, but no, we, uh, we have a lot of uh, anyway, hunter's harvest. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm. But that's, uh, 
it, it's not quite nationwide because some states forbid it, but um, in a lot of states that have a pretty prominent deer hunting uh, culture, you can, and like Mississippi essentially has no limit on does at this point. Hmm. Um, but you can just turn over your extra deer carcasses to Hunter's Harvest, and they will process it and donate it to food kitchens. Huh. And uh, I think Hunter's Harvest is in about 20-odd states or so. They're not in Illinois. Illinois forbids the don't. I think Illinois is like one of the few states that recently passed a law forbidding the donation of game animals. Which is really stupid, because Illinois has a major deer population explosion, too. Hmm. Um, there are a lot of Illinois lawmaking and politics, from what I understand, is pretty damn stupid. But Well, yes, that's why I don't live in Illinois. The only member of my family to successfully escape the gaping law of Chicago. Cheers to that. Amen. Chicago's a great place to visit. I agree. It's but, uh, one of the few cities I've visited where I thought, oh, this is actually kind of pretty city. And then... I uh, love the architecture, love the people, love the food, love the beer. Beer's good. Wine in Illinois is, of course, lousy, but... Well, but they get wine from all over. True. But, uh... The, no, the number one thing that is terrible about Illinois is the legal uh, atmosphere. You know, what, what laws are, what the, the culture is. You know, like, gun-grabbing communism. Sort of. My parents pay as much in taxes every year on their house as I pay for my house. My mortgage, with escrow included, every year. That's how much they pay in taxes. And they're in an unincorporated part of their city. That's crazy things. Yes, it is. I pay about 9000 a year for my house. Yeah. Uh, 2500 of which is taxes and insurance. So, yeah, it's pretty insane. But there you go. You want to live in and around the big city? It pays your money. It takes your chances. Yeah. Pardon. That's all right. That's the extra wine fridge that's making the noise it yeah. decides to make itself heard for no real reason, so to speak. It's but lonely. It's lonely. It's going... So ronery. So ronery. Ah. It's the second time we've gone to America today. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, lovely, lovely movie. So what brought you to Arizona? Um... Long story short, or ladies. long, or <laughs> okay, well, let's expand on this ladies <laughs> answer. Um, so due to the late unpleasantness, I was uh, it was suggested by my spiritual father that I go to a monastery. He recommended a women's monastery because men's monasteries are loud and uh, obnoxious, and. Uh, I said, okay, and so I shopped about for a women's monastery I could go to that was not in Elwood City, Pennsylvania, where everybody in my parish goes uh, when they go on spiritual retreats, and uh, Cody recommended St. Paisius down in uh, Safford. Um, I arranged a visit there, stayed there for a couple days, uh, spent a lot of time in church, a lot of time praying, a lot of time enjoying the beautiful countryside. And then I drove up to the beautiful town of Jerome. Again, through lots of lovely countryside. Stopped uh, at a brewery and a winery on the way. Yes, stopped at that uh, brewery and pub and at Trident Winery. Um, enjoyed both greatly. Um, and then the drive from Pine to Jerome... Like, the drive to Pine was pretty amazing, because Roosevelt Lake. And Roosevelt Lake's really astounding, um, and really gorgeous. But, it was also quite low. The level, you could tell, the level of the lake was obviously low, um, which was sad. 
Um, nice suspension bridge though. Uh, enjoyed that part. And I passed a few bicyclists. One on a touring bike that was way overloaded. The dude was seriously struggling. He'd probably been, you know, biking since early in the morning though. It's about one o'clock when I passed him. But then, from Pine to Jerome, hands down, the most beautiful drive through the mountains outside the Shenandoah Valley I've ever been on. It's, it's, I've been a long time since I've been in the Shenandoah, um, but uh, it's at least tied for the Shenandoah. It may surpass it, but I clearly have to go back and check, and the Shenandoah is good wine country as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll go there, have some nice Virginia sparkling wines, eat a good steak, and drive through the fog-capped Shenandoah Valley, and uh, you know compare the two. And I suspect come. that the drive from Pine to Jerome will win, um, but there's a lot more places on, along the Shenandoah uh, Valley to pull off and take photographs safely. This is very true. It, it's There are a few safe points on that drive to take photos. I saw exactly one, and it was on the other side, headed uh, south. Yeah. It was, it was actually at a, at a great place to take a photograph, and some professional photographer, or some amateur with a really big camera, uh, was uh, walking back to his car from up the... Uh, up the road, but uh, the way people were driving through there, I would not have felt safe getting out of my car. But a lovely, lovely drive. So out of the wineries that we visited today, Mm -hmm. um, which was your favorite? Why? It's tough. Uh, and, and don't just say Pillsbury because Sarah's cute. Well, I mean, come on, everybody was cute. <laughs> I'm sorry, there, there are an insufficient number of ugly people working at your alcohol distributing, uh, alcohol distributing uh, joints. Just not enough ugly people. Uh, everybody was cute. Uh, Sarah did like the Russian accent thing, which was amusing. Um... <laughs> You know, I liked, I enjoyed uh, the wines at Caduceus a good bit. Um, Passion was nice. Um, I definitely, one of the things that I noticed is that each winery has its own ethos, which is relayed in the decor, whether on purpose or inadvertently, hard to say. But, uh, let me start, let me explain what I mean. I'll start with passion. Passion is uh, a very sort of clean, almost Patrick Bateman-y. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's definitely got that, you know, sort of uh, a very uh, clean, not sterile, but, um, you know, so not hospital at all, but more like a, you know, like a cocktail lounge kind of kind okay. of deal, right? Which is actually entertaining because I know Jason modeled some of the design of that space based on a certain cocktail lounge in New York. So well, it definitely it definitely reeks of cocktail lounge. Um, Caduceus uh, is like a general store. It's got that sort of ethos of. Uh, Or maybe even like an old school gun or jewelry store, right, with the glass-topped cases yeah. and all of that. Um, you know, the green color on the shelving behind the bar, that sort of thing. Um, and generally, um, you know, a, a little more rustic setting than passion. Um, and then next, where do we go next? That was Chateau Tumbleweed. Right. Tumbleweed is, um, I think that they didn't really have a decor uh, plan other than emphasize the wines. 
Uh, I think that particular because when you turn back towards the door, you see where they've got all the barrels and everything there. Um, more industrial than anything else. Very much like a brewery, reminded me of Revolution Brewing in Chicago or uh, Southern Prohibition Brewing in uh, Hattiesburg, my client, where in the tasting room they literally have all their barrels for their barrel aging just sitting there, um, which was nice. And then went to 48 next? 48. 48, yeah. So 48, um, it had more of that sort of uh, general store soda fountain type feel almost. Um Again, part of that, I'd say it's mostly determined by the building. That building actually used to be the old bank, basically National Bank of Clarkdale. Um, the gift the, where the t-shirts are is actually in the old vault, interestingly mm. enough. Okay, yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I remember looking back now, you know, seeing the sort of teller cages and all that. Um, but, you know, definitely had sort of a more old-timey feel, turn of the century. Um, definitely not rustic. You know, as opposed to like Caduceus, which has got sort of a more, you know, uh, street front uh, store in a mining town vibe. And uh, of course, Arizona Stronghold's got that strong coffee house vibe, you know, with the overstuffed leather uh, sofas and the red uh, red paint on the walls. Um, and of course, the uh, local artist. With, uh, I can't remember what her name was offhand, but... No, she had a, a real interesting juxtaposition of sort of uh, Arthurian Fisher King imagery with Dia de los Muertos. At least one of those pieces. Um, and then, of course, Pillsbury um, is sort of, sort of reeked of classic California wine bar. Which is not a bad thing at all, right, but it was uh, by, by far the most what I would think of as stereotypical uh, wine tasting room. Um, of course, you know the wine was excellent everywhere we went. I can't say we had a bad wine anywhere. They were all quite good. I did think that Arizona Stronghold's Grenache was very subtle. It was definitely the sort of thing that I would use as an introduction. I never would think of a Grenache as an introductory red wine until I had that one. And I was like, this is something that somebody who doesn't really like reds, you could give this to them and say, here, try this. And as long as you don't tell them what it is, they won't go and order a Grenache somewhere else and get blown away by it. Well, what I've... I, I think I said this too earlier, really, if not, I meant to bring it up. Grenache is kind of like the Pinot Noir of the desert. Yeah. Um, for us, it's our light-bodied to medium-bodied red out here. It's not super heavy like it is in Spain. It's again, approaches that flexibility that you get with Pinot Noir in California or Burgundy. Right. Uh, the difference is that I like Pinot Noir and Burgundy and can't stand it at all in California. How do you feel about it in, you know, the Willamette Valley? It's okay. Yeah. I still like Burgundy more, but maybe yeah. I'm just being snobbish. Um, you? I know. I harsh the thought. Um, of course, I really do love uh, Del Rio Springs, and I bring them up a lot because they need more love and not really anyone knows that they're there yet. So, And they do have a really beautiful Burgundian style of Pinot Noir. Um, that I think is beautiful. It's one of the best ones I've had from the U.S., at least for my palate. But then again, my palate is not everyone else's palate. It's, as I said before, my two favorite grapes are diametrically opposite. You have Malvasia, which is light and airy and floral and fruity, and then you have Tanat, which, when done properly, has so much tannins that you're straining them out of your teeth and having to floss for a week. Um, you could use it to pave roads. You could. It's that big and juicy and tannic and gritty. What are we? We had something to do with Tanat in it. 
Uh, that was the bigness that you were talking about at Shepherd Tum- Well, we weren't talking about it, but the bigness had. Uh, yeah, she had tumbleweed. X percentage of tomato, I can't remember off yeah. my head, but it definitely added to the. Oh, well, yeah, bigness. That, thing, that thing blew away. What are we? What was after that? The Samaran. Um, oh, the Samaran Syrah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that could not follow that. I mean, the big. That thing was so militant. Yeah, it's like it nailed up 95 theses. To the wall. Yeah. One of the only things that I agree with Martin Luther uh, that he ever wrote or yeah, said. Uh, uh, just in principle, nailing things to walls. Okay, that's two things I agree with Martin Luther <laughs> on. Um, but the main thing that he's written that I agree with is he wrote somewhere, and I don't remember the exact citation where, because had a little bit to drink. Uh, he said, beer is made by men, wine is made by God. And as someone who dabbles in craft brewing, I have to ask, do you agree with this or not? Sure. And why? Um, because beer is not primarily an agricultural product. Um, we talked about this earlier. I talked about it earlier. Um, you know, the the quality of your malts doesn't vary. A good maltster is going to produce a good malt. A brewer will have preferences. But ultimately, it comes down to the craftsman and the quality of ingredients has improved so much over time, and they're no longer being hoarded by the big, I guess, what are they, one and a quarter now? Um, SAB, InBev, whatever it is now, right? The, the huge conglomerate. Yeah. So they uh, they no longer have an ex, you know monopoly on the really quality ingredients. Haven't had it for years. So that part of the equation doesn't exist in beer anymore. Um... The only thing that matters in beer is the quality of your craftsmanship. Um, and ultimately, of course, whether it, it's tasty. But most of the time, you know, the, the styles are well-defined. Uh, the innovation comes in little tweaks here and there. Uh, it's not going to come in how you grow your hops or where your hops come from, that sort of thing. Um, or, you know, where your malt comes from. Water is the base. Um, really not, it just, you know, wine is so dependent on the grape. And the grape is dependent on the, the terroir and, you know. And then, you know, what are you trying to express in the grape? In the malt, you don't have to worry about what you're trying to express, right? It's it's straight up chemistry. Uh, well, as far as your assembly, now what you do after it's it's all, you know, brewed. That makes a big difference. How you condition it, whether you filter it or not, how you age it, the stages of fermentation, but. None of that stuff's going to ruin a good beer, and none of that stuff's going to save a bad beer. Um, Because ultimately, what matters is how much oxygen gets in your lines, uh, whether your yeast is pure, whether there are any infections, uh, whether you keep your equipment clean. That's all a lot more important. Which is not to say that ingredients aren't important, because they definitely are, but, you know, on, on the whole, no, no brewery's going to go out of business because there is a crappy, you know, batch of malts. <laughs> Whereas, you know, a, a crappy, uh, crappy harvest, you know, could destroy a winery. Exactly. It's just not going to happen to a brewery. You can always pick up slack somewhere else. Case in point, uh, Boston Beer Company sold, at cost, 55,000 pounds of hops when there was a hop shortage. Sold it to craft brewers only. 
And it's one of the things that craft brewers, I feel, they mistreat the Boston Beer Company. Because Boston Beer Company is big. They're not, they're nowhere near as big as Anheuser-Busch, you know, SAB, Miller, that kind of thing. But, they're the biggest craft brewer, and they get a, people are like, well, they're throwing their weight around, we don't like them. I'm like, they just sold you 55,000 pounds of hops at cost, you know, available to anybody who needed them. Single-handedly did away with the hop shortage that was going to crush craft beer two years ago. And, as far as I know... I mean, and a lot of brewers are, are grateful and have said things, but the general attitude among uh, craft beer snobs is that Sam Adams is a bunch of dicks. And I find that obnoxious. Nobody sells the thing. If they wanted to be jerks, they could have just held on to those hops because they bought them at the peak of the market. They needed them for what they were going to brew. It's not like they were hoarding them. Yeah. But instead, they decided to change what they were brewing and you know, let some craft brewers have hops so they could brew the beer that, you know, essentially helps them survive. Sam Adams lost some volume growth that they were going to have. So to them it was very little. But the idea that, you know, craft beer consumers are pissed off at Sam Adams because, oh, well, you know, they were just holding on these 55,000 pounds of hops, you know, hoarding bastards, and I'm like, oh, you just, you really have no idea. So, second to last question. All right. What would we pair this wine with? Ah, uh, Grenache is easy. You can always do steak. Oh, I feel like this would have gone pretty well with those brisket sandwiches we had. That, yeah. True. This, this would hold up with really anything. Um, actually would hold up to any really big flavors. Um, thinking like a... A spicy beef salad in the Thai restaurant. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, a nice, like, uh, Nashville hot chicken. Um, which, you know, not to jump on the Nashville hot bandwagon, but Nashville hot is a totally different species than, uh, like buffalo wings, man. So, they're, uh, because it's an oil-based... Huh. Uh, I've they, actually never heard anything about this Nashville hot okay, thing. Okay, so, so Nashville hot chicken is a great... It started in Nashville. Uh, the, the story is, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, he was out running around on his woman with his second lady. Um, and uh, his woman got real tired of it, and so she made him some fried chicken, and she made it as spicy as she could possibly make it, and she basically made a hot pepper paste and put it all over the chicken and he loved it and his great niece still owns the hot chicken restaurant uh, it's in Nashville it's in a strip mall um, they've been reviewed you know Bourdain's been there uh, Sean Brock goes there all the time um, it, it is the Nashville hot chicken thing to, to do and uh, they don't let the cameras back into the kitchen. They uh, are very strict about it. And, uh, yeah, I saw Tony Bourdain sweat on TV eating this stuff. It's super spicy. Um, and it does, it sticks with you. And this would cut through it because the thing about it is that because it's an oil based paste that goes on the chicken, it's, I wouldn't say it's greasy, but it's definitely got a good fat later on, and this would cut through some of that. Okay. Um, but yeah, this would stand up some pretty spicy food. Um, yeah, it, although it would also go really well with, like, Swedish meatballs. Beef stroganoff. Mm-hmm. Anything that's pretty fatty, this would pair well with. Also, in my head, thinking rabbit. Ooh, rabbit would be nice. Yeah, something, anything with a good, uh, you know, thyme, lavender sort of thing. Rabbit, those are classic flavors for that. Now, the last silly question. 
Because we are fond of silly questions. We will have four more years of silly government ahead of us. Yes. Well, by default, whoever wins, it's going to be silly regardless, so... Yes. Neither here nor there. My politics is... That politics drives me to drink. (laughs) Thus, today. And and that I should be king. That's the other half of my politics. Sure, you should be king. Um, Because I can't do any worse. (laughs) <laughs> then to be king, or and then the general state of American oh, government oh, well, yeah, in sure. general, right? Whether you're Republican or Democrat, either side, there's lots of issues, but that's neither here nor there. And if there's two things, well, I just don't like getting into politics because I think it's a waste of time. It solves nothing other than making people really, really angry at each other that don't need to be angry or irritated or whatever. Uh, I just, I wouldn't call myself apolitical, but in the end, what really matters is that all the governments will be wiped away when the true kingdom of God comes, so. That's true. Everything else is just delaying, and is a delaying action. (laughs) Arguably. As we know, if we've watched the movie Clue lately, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But speaking of of fine works of literature, um, if this was a character from an Alexander Dumas number, novel, what wine would this, or I should say, if this wine was a character from an Alexander Dumas novel, who would it be, and why? Um, the easy answer is Aramis, Okay. because it's charming, uh, vivacious, restrained, liturgical, um, and appeals to the ladies. Um, my preference, of course, is... Athos, because Athos is a stupendous badass, and this one is pretty amazing. Um, and it's uh, also not subtle. Uh, Aramis is very subtle. Athos is uh, not. Well, he's he's secretive, but uh, he's bold and decisive. When action must be taken, and he uh, is strongly opposed to injustice, Aramis is much more flexible. This wine, I don't know that it's very flexible. It's uh, it's got a pretty well-defined character. It's a good expression of the grape. It's, uh, it does have a certain insouciance about it. I agree. But uh, overall, yeah, I would say Athos or Edmond Dantes. It's implacable. Hmm. It uh, I mean, we've been talking about it for like an hour now. Yeah. So it's it's clearly hung hung out for a solid hour. Yeah. So, you know, the sad thing is I can't pour out what's left of the bottle because I need something to take a picture of with yeah. tomorrow. Sure. Um, but we've still got some of the LDV Grenache open. and yeah. I still also have the Chardonnay from uh, Granite Creek Winery open, mm-hmm. too. Which maybe we want to jump to something lighter as a closer. Sure. Um, that's your call, not mine, because you are my guest. So oh, I'm easy. Your call. But anyway, we'll discuss that later. Um, we'll not bore you with that discussion of what do we drink next. Um, for now, we're going to sign off. Um, Tally ho! This will not be posted before Christmas, but I'm going. But it might be posted before Old Calendar Christmas. So for those that are celebrating the Old Calendar, um, Merry Christmas. For those who have celebrated other winter holidays already, uh, a happy belated holidays. And until next time, this is Cody, signing off.